Hey, good morning. It's good to see you this morning. Um, I, I heard this week, uh, actually when I got home, but I heard this week later on from my, uh, my four-year-old philosophy-driven uh, grandson. He was asked, he was at a Wednesday night Bible study called Awana. Maybe you've heard of that. Approved workmen are not ashamed. And so he's at Awana. And they have a Bible verse, a memory verse for the week. Happens that this week, the memory verse is Psalm 118.1. Give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good. So the leader says, now I want you children to write down three things you are most thankful for. So I'm sure he gave a lot of thought to this. And I saw what he wrote down. Three things that he is most thankful for. Pretty much on cue. Pretty much on good direction. Number one, the world. That's good. Number two, life. That's great. Number three, Walmart. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Sounds to me like he's got his priorities in order. At least Walmart is number three. Um, Since his dad stops by Walmart every Friday and brings him a toy on the way home, Walmart's pretty high on his list, as you can see. Well... I'm not sure if that would make my list, but pretty high on my list of Thanksgiving this week is I'm thankful to be home. We just spent another week, our second week since the storm on Grand Bahama Island, and uh, things are still a mess down there. It's still extremely challenging and uh, uh, just pretty much exhausting being down there. I don't want to say too much about it because some of our team is still coming back. I jumped a little ahead of them so that I could be here this morning. But thank you for all of your prayers. Thank you for your support. And, uh, hey, working hard to try to, to do what we can do to help people. Help people. By the way, somebody said to me, well, why do you go to the Bahamas? There's plenty of people around here that can be helped. Can I just say this? Here's my simple answer. The simple answer is it's not just the condition, it's the command. It's, it's not just the, the situation down there. It's what we're commanded to do. We're commanded to look globally in our mission effort. And so it's a great effort to be able to go down there and help. Well, we're finishing up our final message in a series we've called Judges. We've been looking at a book in the Old Testament simply called Judges. It was interesting. I asked at the very beginning of the series in a small group meeting one night how many had read the book of Judges. And uh, it was amazing to me how many had never picked up the book of Judges, never read it, or don't know of any of the Judges. And so it's been an interesting series. In four weeks, you can imagine, we've not tried to cover all of the Judges or tell the story of each of the Judges, but rather trying to drill down on some of the main points, some of the main themes in this book so that you can read Judges for yourself and understand it a little bit better. So now we come to the conclusion. And as we finish up the book, here's the question I think that we need to address. And I don't know, I kind of think this way about everything I read, whether it's a book by an author, a contemporary author, whether it's a book of the Bible, or maybe a chapter in the Bible, maybe even a Christian blog or article. I always want to ask this question, and here's the final question for the series. What's the point? What's the point? All interesting information... But really, what's the point? What are we trying to get out? What does it mean to me? What is it, how does it affect me? How is it relevant for today? Not just way back, dating back some 1,400 years before Christ, but what about today, 2019, soon to be 2020? What's 
the point. So today I want to talk a little bit about the point of this book of Judges. Now we've learned several important lessons already that all build to this one. The first lesson we learned was that if we're not careful, we can compromise the truth and that we compromise is really only a disguise for disobedience. In other words, if we compromise what God's told us or spoken to us, if we partially obey, we've really disobeyed. Compromise is a disguise for disobedience. And we see in the book of Judges early, very first chapter when we opened it up, what did we learn? That the children of Israel compromised. They did not do exactly what God said. And because they compromised, it came back to bite them a little later, as we'll see even today. The second thing we learned is that we don't have to live in where we, Jesus has freed us from living where we once were. In other words, we saw how that Jesus breaks the curse, how he breaks the curse of the cycle that we see in Judges. Let me remind you that there's a cycle in Judges that repeats itself over and over and over again. See if this sounds familiar. The cycle goes something like this. The people of God are enjoying the blessing of God. And in the midst of that blessing, just what Moses warned them might happen did happen. You remember what Moses said when he was bringing them into the land? He said, you be careful. When you enter into the land of promise, if you're not careful, you'll forget God and you'll serve idols. If you're not careful, you're going to enjoy gardens that you haven't tilled, houses that you haven't built, land that you didn't earn, and if you're not careful, when that happens, you're going to forget God. And sure enough, in the book of Judges, we see in the very early chapters that a generation rose up who didn't know God. And as a result of that, they found this cycle of sin. They were blessed by God, and then they would walk away from God and get into their sin, uh, rebellion against God, and then the enemy would come. One of the enemies, by the way, the enemy they were supposed to have pushed out but didn't compromise. The enemy would come. The enemy would oppress them. They would cry out to God and say, God, would you please help? And he would send them a judge, literally a deliverer, a rescuer, who would come and rescue them from the enemy and restore them once again as a nation and restore peace in the land. And everything was wonderful and they lived happily ever after. No. What happened? The cycle just started all over again. The people took God for granted, took the blessings for granted. They began to walk away from God, began to move into sin. And once again, the enemy would come and, and oppress them and capture them or, or, or destroy them. And, and once again, they would cry out to God and God would send a judge, deliverer. And this cycle would go on and on. But we learned, didn't we, that Jesus has broken the cycle. And we don't, have to be, we don't have to be held captive by that cycle. Even though that's quite relevant for today, and even though the truth is that's often how it happens today, we too are blessed of God. We too take that advantage and walk away from God. And once again, the consequence of sin come into our life, and we cry out to God for help. The same cycle. But listen to me carefully. We don't have to be bound by this cycle. It was broken. The curse of sin broken by Christ on the cross. So we don't have to live there anymore. You don't have to live. You can be free to live the way Jesus wants you to live. And then we learned last week, by looking at Gideon, you remember we learned that God uses broken people. Aren't you glad to know that? God uses imperfect people. 
And we said the reason we know that is because that's all he has to work with, really. We're all imperfect. We're all coming short of what we need and how, but God uses us anyway. An incredible story of how Gideon said, God, you don't want to use me, do you? I'm from the tribe of Manasseh. Don't you remember? We're the weak tribe. And by the way, I'm the youngest of that tribe. I'm pretty sure you want to call somebody else to this task. And God said, no, Gideon, I want you. Isn't that amazing? The most broken one in this building, the most unuseful, the most improbable person in this building is the one that God wants to use. If you're sitting here today and you're thinking, well, God would never use me, you are a prime candidate. Because then, when God moves in your life to accomplish great things, he receives the glory and not you. So today I want to finish up the series by really looking at the point. The point is all of those things, yes. But the real point that I want you to see is this. We need a king, and we need a king who is eternal, and we need a king who has already come. We just don't always realize that we need him. Now, to do that, I want to take you back to the book of Judges, and I want to show you a story you may or may not have heard. Now, some of you are probably thinking, well, let's see, I've heard about that guy Gideon you talked about. He's the guy with the fleece. Or maybe you remember Samson. You remember Samson? He's the big, strong guy, and... You know, he came to deliver Israel, and they were amazed at his strength. And you, Maybe you've heard of Samson and Delilah. I don't know if you've heard this story today, but buckle your seatbelts. You know one thing I love about the Bible is it's so real. It's so real, and it tells of life. It doesn't even try to cover things up. It doesn't even try to ease things. In fact, frankly, I'm going to give you a fair warning. Parts of the scripture this morning should probably be PG-13 rated. That's just because of the way I'm going to handle it. If you read it straight up, it's probably R-rated, okay? But it's, it's okay. It's Scripture. You, it'll be all right. I'm going to handle it carefully and prayerfully, and carefully and prayerfully. But I want to show you an incredible story, and there's a reason for choosing this story at the end. It's a picture of the way Judges, the book of Judges, is summarized, and it really makes the point of the book. I'm referring to the last verse. I want to read the last verse of the last chapter, chapter 21, verse 25. Find it on your Bible or your tablet, your phone, whatever. It'll be on the screen so you can follow along there. Look at these important words. It says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did whatever seemed right to him. In those days, there was no king in Israel, so everyone did whatever seemed right to him. What a summary. That's a summary of the entire book. And by the way, I don't think it's a stretch to say it's a summary of human life. I don't think it's a stretch to say that while this was written times before, or, or occurred years before Christ, now today, that sounds like that could be a description of us in our country today. In those days, there was no king in Israel. That's where I want us to start. No king in Israel. We're going to see that occur in the scripture several times, and so that tells me it's very important. There was no king in Israel. It's also important because when you turn the page, the last page of the book of Judges, guess what the next page talks about? The coming of a king. 
Wow. But right now, there's no king in those days. In what days? Let me remind you, in case you're, you're new to Judges and maybe you weren't here for the past, I can't go into all the detail, but I can tell you a little bit. I can kind of give you a glimpse, a quick glimpse of Israel's history. Israel's history really began with a man named Abraham. You remember him? Abraham, when he was an old man, was promised a son, and God said, I'm going to make of you a great nation. And Abraham said, how, God, have you looked at my age? Have you looked at the age of my wife, Sarah? This is impossible. Possible, but guess what? God specializes in impossible situations. And so he says, I, I'm going to make you a nation. So Abraham had children, and their children had children, and their children had children. And finally, there were 12 sons who became the 12 tribes of Israel. Maybe you've heard of that before. And these 12 tribes, based on these 12 sons, began to grow into a nation. But then they were held captive in Egypt for 400 years slaves to the Egyptians. And they cried out to God and they said, God, I thought you promised our father Abraham that we would have our own land, that we would have a place of our own, a promised land. God said, I've heard you. Send a man by the name of Charlton Heston. I mean, no, no, Moses, sorry. You had not seen that movie, you don't get the joke. AJ, you hadn't seen that one, have you? I don't know. That, but, but here's the thing. He sent Moses, and, and Moses came to the people and spoke to Pharaoh on behalf of God. And God sent these terrible plagues. And before you know it, Pharaoh releases Moses and the children of Israel. They cross over the Dead Sea. Whew, this is the short version. They wander around in the Sinai wilderness for 40 years before another leader comes up. And his name is Joshua, Hebrew Yeshua. Savior, deliverer. And Joshua raises up to take the place of Moses as the leader of Israel. They march across the Jordan River and into the land of Canaan, Canaan. And there they begin to take the cities one by one by one by one. The problem is the compromise begins. And they didn't take all the cities. They didn't do as God said. God said, send them all out. Push them all out. All the Canaanites, all their gods, push them out. They compromised and only did what they found easy and they could do. But then Joshua died. And when Joshua died, Judges begins the period of time from Joshua until the time of the king. Now here's what's sad. In the beginning of the book, it says, When Joshua and the elders of Israel died, a generation grew who did not know the Lord. And so, in those days. There was no leader. There was no king. All the other countries had a king. There was no king. Actually, Israel had a king. They just didn't recognize it. Their king was God. He wanted a theocracy. They didn't think they needed him. They could do it on their own. Kind of sounds like us. But there's no king. Everyone did whatever seemed right to him. Do you understand the depravity that is seen there? My wife was telling me this week about Beth Moore. Say she did with Beth Moore, and some of you ladies in particular probably love Beth Moore and have done some of her studies. And Beth Moore talks about this particular place in Judges and makes a wise observation, and that is that the truth of the matter is when people do whatever is right in their own eyes, it's really our attempt to become God ourselves. 
We claim to be God. I'm going to be God of my own life. I'm not claiming to be God of the universe, but I'm going to at least be God of my own life. And I'm going to run my life. And I'm going to do whatever seems right to me. And when we become gods of ourselves, and when we fall deeply into sin, there are always, always, always consequences. And the consequences of sin are ugly. The consequences of sin are devastating. The consequences of sin rage before our eyes. And I want to show you the conclusion of the book of Judges, how they paint that picture. It's something that's a tough, tough assignment to talk about. Because frankly, the whole ordeal, the whole ordeal is just repulsive to me. It should be repulsive to us. As a matter of fact, the prophets of Israel called what we're going to read today one of the darkest moments in their history. And moments of great shame, all because of what happened in a little place called Gibeah. Gibeah. Maybe you've never heard Gibeah before. Gibeah was a, actually the Hebrew term as the idea of a hill. And so Gibeah is kind of a region there. Don't know exactly where it happened, but it's somewhere west of Bethlehem. And it involves a man who was a Levite. And it led to bloodshed. It led to great shame. That's going to make our point this morning and drive down the final point that I want to make. You ready to go? Buckle up. Look all the way back to chapter 19 of Judges. It says, chapter 19, verse 1. In those days, when there was no king in Israel, there it is again. Listen, when you see something repeated in Scripture, you probably know you ought to take advantage. You ought to look at that. Okay? There, the, all of these words, I really believe this with all my heart. I believe every word in this book is put just where it needs to be, as it needs to be, and as often as it needs to be. And when I look at something and I read it twice within a couple of chapters, I probably better pay attention. He says, in those days when there was no king in Israel, a Levite staying in a remote part of the hill country of Ephraim acquired a woman from Bethlehem in, Jud in Judah as his concubine. Okay, so I'm going to tell you the story and just read portions of it to just kind of move time along. This Levite, an Israeli, very important religious man, very important position, a Levite, an Israelite, takes a woman from Bethlehem as his concubine. The story goes that in time, she leaves him to go back home. She's unfaithful to him and heads back to her parents' house. And, and so the man comes and he has his servant with him and he, he has his burrow with him or his camel or whatever he had and he goes back and he goes to the, her father's house and, and they begin to talk and negotiate. And so she's coming back with him now, back to his home. And, and as they come, they're traveling. Well, you know what? They don't have Motel 6 in that day. And so what do you do when it starts to get dark? Well, when it starts to get dark, you just come to the city, you go to the city square, and you sit in the city square, and you wait for some hospitable Israeli to come by and offer you a place to stay for the night, right? They're very hospitable people. And so he does that. They're headed back home. It's beginning to get dark, and, and they come to Jebus, which is what we know today as Jerusalem, the Jebusites would be the Canaanites who would live there, that David would later run out of the city. But they come to Jebus, and the servant says, we can stay there. And he says, no, we can't. That's not an Israeli city. That's a Canaanite city. 
The Canaanites are, they're heathens. We can't stay there. We're going to go to an Israeli center, city. And so they come to a place called Gibeah in the land of Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin. Now we have an Israeli city. Now we have a place where we can stay. So listen to what it says in verse 14. It says, so they continued on their journey, and the sun set as they neared Gibeah in Benjamin. They stopped to go in and spend the night in Gibeah. The Levite went in and sat down in the city square, but no one took them into the home to spend the night. So it's dark. They're sitting in the town square. Hey, this is the place of our brothers. Nobody's invited us to stay. I guess we'll just stay here in the square overnight. But then an old man comes to him. If you're following your Bible, I didn't put it on the screen. But if you're following your Bible, go all the way down to verse 20. Look, this old man comes up and he says, Welcome, said the old man. I'll take a Take care of everything you need. Only don't spend the night in the square. I think he knows something you don't know. Down where we stay in Bahamas the last couple of weeks, uh, last couple of times we've been down there, they have a Wednesday night fish fry. Now that sounds heavenly because you're in the Bahamas and fish fry, that's just too good combination, right? And so it's really an incredible time. And they had this Wednesday night fish fry. And so the first time I stayed there, I had a couple of Bahamian young guys with me that stay with me when I go down there. They just kind of know the area. They're known, they're well-known. They're in their mid-20s, I guess. And I said to them, I said, hey, Javal, I think I'm going to send everybody down to the fish fry and enjoy a little bit of the culture. He says, Pastor Eddie, no, you don't want to send them to the fish fry. Well, after being down there a few times, I understand why. The fish fry finally quits at 2.17 a.m. You notice I had that precisely because I did not sleep. A lot of fighting, a lot of drinking, a lot of carousing. You don't go there. This man knows something. He says to the Levite, no, 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 no. You can't stay in the square. And so what happens? While they were, um, it says, so he brought them, verse 21, so he brought them to his house and fed the donkeys. Then they washed their feet and ate and drank. And while they were enjoying themselves, he invited them to his home. They're there. They're enjoying themselves. All of a sudden, wicked men of the city surrounded the house and beat on the door. They said to the old man who was the owner of the house, bring out the man who came to your house so we can have sex with him. Wow. Where did that come from? Didn't read that in the Bible before, you're saying. Listen carefully. This crowd begins to gather around the house, and they begin to beat and pound and beat and pound on the door saying, send out your guest for us. Send out your guest to us. By the way, sounds vaguely familiar to Genesis 19. Those of you who know your Old Testament, remember Genesis 19. This same thing happened, only it was not a man, not a Levite. It was an angel of the Lord. An angel, two angels who came into the city of Sodom. And when they came into Sodom, the same thing happened. The people of the city beat on the door. The mob beat on the door. Very similar situation. Almost identical. Not quite, but almost. I'll tell you why I think that's important later. They're beating on the door. They're wanting them to send the man out, the Levite out. Hang on, it gets worse. The old man, the host, and the Levite talk it over. The old man says, you can't go out there. So what do they do? They send the concubine and the host's young daughter. Push them outside. 
You can read what happened, but you probably don't even need to read what happened. Basically, they raped the girls all night long, abused them, the scriptures said, abused them throughout the night. And the next morning when they woke up and they opened the door, the concubine is laying at the door. He can't wake her up. She's dead. Repulsive. But you see, that's the depth to which sin takes us. I think what I want, to see, want you to see in hearing that story and reading that story is the depth of sin's depravity and ugliness. It's amazing to me how we have learned to laugh at sin or to wink at sin or to say of sin, oh, it's not that bad. We allow things now into our homes and into our lives, into our minds, into our eyes that once would have been forbidden, but we've just become comfortable. Now, most of you are too young to know this, but back when I was a little boy, I mean, I watched Andy Griffith. Anybody watched Andy Griffith? Mayberry? About the, about the only thing, about the bad as that got is if, if Barney Fife finally got to fire his gun and shoot a, a bullet, you know, and that happened once in every blue moon. And usually it was to knock a pine tree cone out of a tree. But today, we've gotten comfortable, more and more comfortable with sin. And I want to just take a moment, and I know it's not why you came to church today. You came, you said, well, that's encouraging. No, 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 it will be encouraging. Stay with me. But I want you to see the putrid picture of sin and the consequence of being left to sin and doing whatever seems right in our own eyes. So here's this horrible story, but wait a minute. If he can, it gets worse. He picks the concubine's body up, puts it on his animal, and goes on home the next day. When he gets home, he wants to make a point. He wants to make a point to his brothers in Israel because here's the thing. This happened in an Israelite city. We're not talking Sodom or Gomorrah. We're talking about our own brothers. He said it happened. To make a point, listen carefully, good people, by our definition, good people are still greatly impacted by sin. And good people are still sinners. You see, sometimes what I've discovered is it's the, hard, the hardest part of having somebody come to Christ is convincing them they're a sinner because we just kind of wink at it and it's not so bad and I'm a good guy and, you know, I don't do the things that quite as bad. No, this was the people of God who committed this atrocity. So he wants to make a point. <laughs> I'm not, don't go home and say, Brother Eddie said to do this. I'm just telling you what he did. He took the concubine's corpse and he cut it into 12 pieces, totally dismembering it, and sent the 12 pieces, one piece to every, each of the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, how do you like that for a headline? Dismembered concubine mailed to the people. Each of the tribes got a piece that body as you can imagine they're torn up they get the story in chapter 20 watch what happens verse 1 says all the Israelites from Dan to Beersheba Dan by the way if you don't know the geography Dan is the northernmost part of the country I'll be in Dan in January Lord willing Right, Jimmy? And Jimmy's been there. In Dan, you can throw a, a, a stone into um, Lebanon. 
is the northernmost part. Beersheba is the southernmost part. So the point is, the entire country from Dan to Beersheba, all the Israelites and from the land of Gilead came out and the community assembled as one body before the Lord at Mizpah. The leaders of all the people and all the tribes of Israel presented themselves in the assembly of God's people. 400,000 armed foot soldiers. The Benjaminites heard that the Israelites had gone up to Mizpah, and the Israelites asked, tell us how did this evil act happen? They've gathered together from all over the country into one place. They have an army of 400,000 strong. And their question is, God, how did we get here? You remember we asked that early on in the series? How did we get here? I've just heard, I've heard that so many times as a pastor. When I sit down with a couple, I've, it's happened more than once. When their marriage is torn up, and they look at me and they say, Pastor, we don't know how we got here. Started off, everything was wonderful, and then now we're in a mess. How did we get here? Or finances. Maybe it's your finances, and you've done that before, and you, everything's pretty cool, and everything's great, and then all of a sudden you're, you're broke, and you don't know where to turn. How did we get here? That's the question. God, how did this evil act happen? How did we get here? Well, frankly, in their case, they got there by a lot of bad decisions and bad choices. They got there by compromising the Word of God, a half-obedience, and by doing whatever seemed right in their own eyes. So basically, the rest of the story says, these Israelites got together, and they decided they were going to punish the tribe of Benjamin. So they march against Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin, their own brothers, and a civil war begins. They're fighting there within each other. The, the camp of Israel, the people of Israel, fighting among each other, a huge civil war to the point that Benjamin is defeated. They make an oath, and they say in that oath, we'll not give any of our daughters to be married to any of the sons of Benjamin. And essentially wiping out that tribe. So it's just gone from bad to worse. Now we have this terrible condition in the country. We have brother fighting against brother. In chapter 21, beginning with verse 1, listen to what happens. The men of Israel swore an oath at Mizpah. That oath is saying, none of us will give his daughters to Benjamin in marriage. So the people went to Bethel and sat before the Lord God until evening. They wept and loudly, they wept loudly and bitterly and cried out, Why, Lord God of Israel, has this occurred that one tribe is missing in Israel? God, why... Have you allowed this to happen? Hard to believe this book was written some 1,400 years before Christ. Sounds like conversation today. God, why would you allow this to happen? Frankly, it sounds like thoughts that I had in my mind in the past week. As I rode from town to town on the east end of Grand Bahama, looking at my friends' places, 90% of the homes destroyed. God, why would you allow this to happen? And quickly the table is turned back to the people and said, Hold on. Hold on a minute. 
What you need to be looking at is your own heart. You see, it's easy for us to turn the attention to God when the attention right really well need to come to us. And we might really need to check our decisions, check our hearts, to see that many of the places we find ourselves in are the result of bad choices. And then the summary comes almost as a whisper at the end. In those days, there was no king. And the people did whatever they wanted to do. So what's the lesson? What's the final point? Here's the final point. There's a turnaround when you turn the page to the next part of their history. Israel finally asks God for a king. We need a leader. They recognized that they needed a leader. They recognized that they needed a king. Now their mistake was they thought they needed what everybody else had. That's another whole sermon. The truth, they recognized they needed a leader, they needed a king. And so they raised, what? You remember they chose Saul? Uh, you may not remember all this, you may have to go read it, but they chose a man named Saul. They chose him because he was head and shoulders over everybody else. He was a good looking guy. I mean, that's surely, if there's ever a guy to lead us, that's the guy. Didn't bother to ask God, just said he looks good. Think that's the one. They chose Saul. Well, that didn't work out so well. So then David came along, King David, you remember him. He's the little guy with the, the slingshot, and, and, and they decided they would, they, they would choose David as king. And that was a little bit better. The problem is David committed adultery and tried to hide it with murder. Um, that didn't work out real well. His house became divided, and, and his son Solomon came, and King Solomon was a wise man. He built all wonderful, wonderful palaces in the temple, etc. Everything was great except for the fact that, well, let's just say he had a thousand wives. Do I need to say anything else about Solomon? I think that was before his wisdom kicked in. I don't know. But anyway, he did not work out real well. And after Solomon, his sons rose. And before long, the kingdom divided into a northern kingdom, a southern kingdom, and ultimately were held captive by Assyria and Babylon. They're gone from the land. Did not work well. There's still no king in Israel. But then some 400 years later, one comes, born as a baby in Bethlehem. One comes to a little village right near Gibeah that we're talking about. Bethlehem, Bethlehem, house of bread. God sends a little baby into the world, but not just any baby. It was the Word made flesh. It was God incarnate. God wrapped and robed in flesh so that he could live on this earth for 30 plus years, going about doing good without sin, no sin in his life, here with this pure, spotless body that he would lie down on a Roman cross and be crucified for the sins of the people. John, is one of his best friends, wrote it this way. He said, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, his only begotten son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. And this same Jesus said, I'm coming again, but when I come again, I'm coming as king. What? 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 As king. 
The little baby was a lamb, but he comes back as the lion of the tribe of Judah, the king of kings and lord of lords. And finally, we have a king. <laughs> Not one that's going to die. Not one that's going to give up his rule to another. Not one that's going to mess up. Not one that's going to turn back. But a king forever. You see, Judges teaches us that there is a king coming. And as long as we rely on human kings, we're destined for trouble. They come and they go. They come and they go. They come and they go. Judges come, judges go. Judges come, judges go. Pastors come, pastors go. And I want you to put confidence in this guy. I'm no different than the judges. Although I don't think I can dissect uh, 12 parts. I don't think I can do that. But we have a king who lives forever. So the problem, the point is, you can't solve the problem in your life. You need a king, and that king is Jesus. So here's the final takeaway, and I'm done, and I'm sitting down, whether you believe me or not. Here's the takeaway. We learn from judges that we're the problem, so we can't be the solution. As much as like we would like to be the solution, we can't be the solution because we're the problem. We're imperfect. We're sinners. We're highly dependent upon a king to come and rescue us. Like Gideon, like Samson, we need a king, a rescuer to come. But we need a king who's not going to die. He's not going to put us into another cycle, but one who rescues us forever. King Jesus, I'd be happy to introduce him to you today. Pray with me, would you? Every head bowed, every eye closed. Thank you, King Jesus. Thank you, King Jesus, for coming as our judge, our deliverer, our rescuer, our savior, our king. God, help us to keep our eyes fastened on the king and not be distracted by the things of this world. Help us not to trust in people but to trust in you. Touch our hearts right now, Lord, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.